Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code podcast for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Nailbiter. Nailbiter is a global quantitative video metrics platform using in-the-moment video to capture and code real shopping and consumer behavior in-store, online, and at home. Nailbiter turns these into actionable metrics that are proven at many of the world's leading CPG brands. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to spend it with me and our guest. And we'll just dive right in from there. Today, it is my honor and my privilege to have one of the nicest guys in market research here, Edwin Roman from ESPN, Senior Director, Brand Strategy and Content Insights. Edwin, welcome. Thank you, Lenny. Really appreciate you having me on. It's an honor to be on opposite with you, but also to join some of the other great voices that you've had on this podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh, well, uh, thank you, my friend. Having you on is, is great. Those who listen to us know that I kind of know everybody, but there's a few people that are special and that I just really, really enjoy them as, as individuals. Edwin and I have known each other for, gosh, what, Edwin, 10 years, something like that? Um, a, bunch, a bunch of years. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, a bunch of years. And uh, just heck of a nice guy. So now I'll quit being blowing smoke and we'll. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And the love goes both ways. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. So since I know you, but our audience necessarily doesn't, why don't you uh, give a little bit of background on how you got into this weird industry that we all know and love called research and how that brought you to ESPN? Sure. So. I had the opportunity when I was in graduate school, I studied organizational psychology and really got my first taste of research then. And I know on, on other podcasts, you've talked about how a lot of people stumble into this, into this profession. And I think I was one of those people that stumbled as well. So I had a chance to do a graduate internship where I actually was able to conduct customer satisfaction research for AT&T. And then I also conducted research for the New York State court system during my two years in graduate school. And then that brought me to Roper Starch. And that was a big part of what I call my, my happy accident. You know, one of, my, one of my favorite quotes, and it's attributed to Branch Rickey and, I, and some others, but I'm going to go with Branch Rickey because he is a sports executive that was really instrumental in signing Jackie Robinson in Major League. So I always love mentioning Branch Rickey, but he said that luck is the residue of design. And so for me, that really means, you know, our hard work, our effort really puts us in a position to be lucky. And essentially, I think I did get lucky, you know, coming to ESPN. So while I was at Roper Starch, um, I received a promotion. And sure enough, ESPN became one of my accounts. And you kind of see where the story is going. And so one client lunch later on uh, a restaurant on the Upper West Side of New York City, I was discussing sort of like my background, my capabilities. And the person that was heading up primary research at the time said, you know, I really like what you brought to the table. Would you be interested in doing research at ESPN? And for me, it really was a no brainer, like combining research and sports, like, of course. But, you know, in the moment I curbed my enthusiasm, make sure I wasn't overdoing it. 
And um, a few conversations later with some of the other folks in the department, you know, I was offered the position to be part of their primary research team. And here we are now, 18 years later. So luck is definitely what you make of it. Yeah. So I love that quote. That's great. That's actually been a a recurring theme in a lot of the conversations uh, over the past almost year of doing podcasts of the serendipity, fate, luck, you know, whatever the, the case may be, but just being in the right place at the right time and doing the right things and good stuff happens. So yeah, I agree. I agree. It's the universe yeah. just ring in a good way, which I, I like to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Roper Starch. Now that is a name that has not been brought up in any of these <laughs> podcasts up to that point, but I remember them well. And you know, they're, they're definitely one of those companies that launched the careers of many people in the industry. So thanks for the nostalgia on uh, <laughs> remembering <laughs> Roper Starch. No, of course, we could probably follow the trail of what it became eventually. But yeah, it's a brand that still has a, a special place in my heart, being sort of the first research company that, that I worked for. Yeah, yeah. Well, and one of the biggest at the time. So good foundational education. So it's like so many people work for Nielsen early on in their career, right? I mean, Nielsen's an incubator yeah. for thousands of professionals in the research industry. A hundred percent. And, you know, when, when, when I speak to others about like, you know, my, my journey in, in research, I always say, you know, starting on the provider side is such a blessing because it exposes you to a variety of things, a variety of categories. And now I get to take some of that, that general knowledge and then really apply it from a sports lens. So that, that really is a, a compelling path. If, if you're one of those fortunate people that knows that you want to do research in advance, unlike the happy accident I mentioned before for myself. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the happy accident of ESPN. Now we'll, we'll just ask the obvious question. So what is your favorite sport? All right. So that, that is a, a little bit of a sore spot for me right now. So my favorite sport by far is baseball, but I happen to be a big fan of the New York Mets. And I was at game three this past weekend when they completely choked and ruined their chances in the postseason. So it's one of those things that I don't like to talk about right now. The wound is still very, uh, <laughs> it still hurts. It still hurts. But certainly baseball followed by um, NFL football. And then I'm also a Knicks fan. So I root for a lot of blue and orange teams that don't always put together compelling seasons. <laughs> well, uh, as a uh, former uh, Atlanta native i can relate on <laughs> there we go especially baseball so <laughs> sports misery loves company definitely yeah <laughs> all right let's shift gears though because it is interesting and we were chatting a little bit beforehand on you know i mean espn was the first cable platform for sports right it defined the entire category and in that media landscape yeah, it was like CNN, CNN, ESPN. I mean, you know, they're the category leaders, news, sports, et cetera, et cetera. And the media landscape has changed so much since then, right? From a channel perspective, right? There's so many different ways to engage with content and, uh, and so much competition as well. And uh, gosh, just last night I was flipping channels. We, we have direct TV and, you know, there's a thousand and one, <laughs> early sports <laughs> channels, right? <laughs> Whatever the case may be. Wait, it's uh, the paradox of choice. Absolutely. So, so talk a little bit about that on that, that evolution from a research standpoint of needing to constantly adapt to a new way to engage with, with your audience and with fans when there was so much distribution now. Yeah, that's, it's a really, really great question. I think the first thing that we've done as a company and, and more specifically, even as a research team is to really change our frame of reference. 
So, you know, being at ESPN for 18 years, I think one of the things that I'm always mindful of is making sure that I'm not beholden to, to legacy that I think is the way that things should be done and always trying to make sure that I'm, I'm thinking in new ways. Like, so how do you basically disrupt your own status quo when you've been doing something for so long? And in, in changing that frame of reference, one of the, I'll use some ESPN, you know, comparisons here. Like we have this technology that we've used in live games called ESPN Access, which is the ability to take a play and then you can freeze it and then essentially rotate the play and seeing it from a completely different angle. And we do that by taking advantage of all the multiple cameras that we have in an event or a game. In the same way, I think we're starting to take our research cameras and starting to think about competition from different viewpoints, right? This is about, you know, us recognizing that competitors are not just the ones that we see right in front of us that have, you know, the sports label affixed to them, but it really is any media that competes for share of mind or share of time for consumers. And, you know, ultimately, I think that's set a tone for how we even think about what is a sports research study. Like, are we doing studies that are about the sports space or are we doing studies about, you know, the consumer space? And the answer is probably yes, right? We're doing both of those. They're both essential. But I think we're very mindful of making sure that we're monitoring not only our position as a sports brand, but also as a larger media brand. Even the questions we choose to ask or how we even phrase those questions, I think has been impacted and shaped by this change in the landscape in terms of all these distribution platforms that you mentioned. No, I love that. And it makes an awful lot of sense. I mean, years ago, one of the coolest talks I heard at a conference was the head of research for Batesville Caskets. <laughs> and <laughs> right. I'm waiting. Keep going that way. <laughs> like, who are you talking to and how are you doing it? Right? <laughs> Talk about a customer base. <laughs> <laughs> right. And what was interesting is I said, look, we obviously we can't talk to our customers, right? At least not the end user. Yeah. And we don't necessarily <laughs> want to talk to any you know, friends, family. So instead they looked at lots of other signals to lots of other data sources to try and understand trends that could be impacting choice. So one of the examples that she used, and I'll get to my point here in a second, yeah, yeah, yeah. as cup holder sizes increased in vehicles, the assumption is people are drinking more sugary drinks. So therefore they're gaining weight. So they needed to make bigger caskets or as uh, certain luxury brands would grow, then they would incorporate, okay, well, we need to have velvet lining, you know, in our offerings because people, you know, are, are affiliated with these luxury brands. And I just thought, wow, now that is pretty darn cool. Terrible topic, right? <laughs> <laughs> but interesting from that idea of, they didn't think of themselves as a casket company, that was a product. But right. their inputs came from a variety of sources of information because they needed to understand the entire landscape so that they could optimize their product, which, you know, it's one that everybody needs. So I guess it's an okay business to be in. Always going to be a customer. That's pretty intriguing. We, you know, we've had the benefit of, since we're part of the larger Disney family, we had a wonderful colleague who heads up foresights at, at, a, at a Disney level. And she, shared some of her pearls of wisdom with, with our team at ESPN. And I think one of the things that she really taught us is thinking about signals, as you mentioned. And so I think we spend a lot of our time thinking about like those strong signals that sometimes are right in front of us, 
But I think where we really like saw value in how she was framing the work that she did was how do we start thinking about those weaker signals? Some of the some of the examples that you just alluded to, things that perhaps are on the fringe that maybe in isolation don't quite mean something, but when you start connecting some of those dots, they start to paint a pattern of something that we should be watching out for. So certainly very intrigued. Like, again, I know it was an interesting example, but intrigued by some of the signals that you have to listen to, both strong and weak. Yeah, well, and so from a media standpoint, right, obviously, you know, sports is the core focus from the media, you know, the, the programming. And obviously you're, you're a media company, so you make money from selling advertising. So it's how do you attract eyeballs on there? That's the model, it's a business model. Streaming, set aside. So it is about growing the audience, right? Ultimately, as it is in any advertising medium. And it's not always, so I'm a casual sports fan. I was burned too many times by the Braves. So, like, oh, okay. so I'm, I'm, I'm going to clear my heart and just not, you know, not be involved. I, I, again, I can sympathize. Yeah. <laughs> but there's certain, you know, there's certain events that I, you know, okay, we're going to tune in and watch the, the World Series. And, you know, if I haven't been following the teams, the Olympics would be another example, uh, which mm-hmm. I know is not on uh, ESPN, but there, there's events that I'm interested in. So, as a casual audience member, I've often thought, now the challenge is, how do you convert me to a continual audience member, to an engaged audience member? How do you take me from someone who's casual to a fan to get more of my attention, to get you know more, more mind share from me? And that's an interesting research challenge on understanding those other dimensions to try and convert me to do those things. So far, no one's been successful, but... Can you share some examples of things that you've done to try and address that audience growth perspective? You know, I, I get researching your fans, your already engaged audience. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. So, but taking that further. Yeah. Well, you know, when we talk about fans at ESPN, first of all, I'll say all are welcome. So the habits and the casuals, and, and we certainly have you know other ways of, of looking at fandom that I think speak to some of the, the nuances that, that you're alluding to. But like the vocabulary of, of being a fan is very intentional. It's actually built into our, our company mission, which is to serve sports fans anytime and anywhere. So it doesn't say serve sports fans that are avid. It doesn't say serve sports fans that are casual. And so for us, we, we try to think about that word fan and fandom in the broadest sense of the word. I think for us, it's also recognizing, especially with the number of tools that are available to fans nowadays, is that there are different ways of fanning. Like we actually do use it as a verb at ESPN. And so, you know, as we say at ESPN, like we take sports seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. And that idea though of service and fandom really is our North Star. And so in terms of how we start thinking about some of those audiences, I think one of the things that we also think about is not just sports at a very superficial level, but what are some of the intrinsic needs that are served by sports? for different types of sports fans. And so for you, Lenny, it may be a, a social connection, right? It may be a way to relate to your family on a Friday night watching something together. And so we know there's different paths to fandom. So at ESPN, we're thinking about, you know, there isn't just that one journey to become a fan or there isn't that one journey in expressing your fandom. So how are we thinking about those underlying needs and addressing them through the variety of platforms that we have available to ourselves? We're going to take a quick pause to highlight our podcast partner, Nailbiter. If you didn't know, 
Nailbiter is one of the fastest risers on our annual Grit Top 50 Most Innovative Suppliers list, with a unique platform delivering quantitative behavioral video metrics. Those metrics help inform some of the most important business questions their CPG clients have within a diverse range of consumer and shopper research areas. Speaking of diversity, within the Grit Top 15, Nailbiter is the only supplier with a female CEO and is the only certified minority business enterprise supplier by the NMSDC. Now, and that's, that's interesting makes me think about, it's not just choice of, of channel, of engagement channel uh, or consumption channel, it's also an explosion of choice in content with different types of sports, right? We, it's not just football, baseball, basketball <laughs> anymore. There are so many niche things that have emerged that have rabid fandoms. Disc golf, right? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, things like that. Uh, and I think, well, let me ask a question. When in, in 2020, kind of post when the major league sporting events were not happening, I noticed, at least casually, that a lot of your, your content was filled with these more individualized niche sporting events, you know, different things out of necessity, right? You needed to fill the space for programming. Uh, so that's my guess. And how have you migrated or navigated what could be a larger audience now, potentially, engaged in a larger variety of content when that's a, a very specialized thing, right? You've got your big audience basis of major sports, but now, you know, these, well, hey, I like watching disc golf too. So how do you balance that out? And what does that mean from a research standpoint to keep exploring what those choices are and how you appeal to them? Yeah, that, that was a really profound question for us in, in 2020. I think one of the things that we recognized where there were those additional outlets, and, and I think it goes back to whether it was, you know, Korean baseball, which we had on our ear for a number of time, or we were able to actually um, showcase The Last Dance, which is a, a huge feature film that we were able to, you know, push up on our schedule during that time period when there were no sports. I think, you know, the underlying thing is thinking about, again, what are those things that make sports sports and creates that connection? One of the differences I would say now versus the start of my career at ESPN is that the options for how we deliver sports content to fans has certainly changed and been hugely amplified. So when you start thinking about some of the streaming options, ESPN Plus, which is our, you know, our certainly our, our direct-to-consumer product, if you will, allows us to program and to create content for fans that really has no limit, right? There's no such thing as we only got three channels. I think sometimes they say we have eight on TV, but the point is it allows us to stretch sports fandom as far as fandom can go. And I remember this one great quote when we were talking about the deconstruction of fandom and then trying to understand how it's evolving. And this one fan said like, you know, my fandom goes as far as Google takes me, right? Like, so there's, there's so many different ways to connect to, you know, very small pieces of sport. So we're constantly thinking about that full complement of sports content, not just from like a live event perspective, but also just even some of the stories. Cause I think one of the things that sometimes we, we take for granted is that yes, you may be an NBA fan or you may be an NFL fan, or you may be a cricket fan, but there are things about what sports represent that underline all of those things. And I think our greatest 
weapon is is our storytelling and being able to to bring those sports stories that any fan can identify with. I'm going to embarrass my wife for a second because she is absolutely not a sports fan. Like, I mean, nothing. She's got nothing at all. But the one thing that I've found that gets her to watch something with me are some of our 30 for 30 films, some of our shorter content and, and short films where the content is not just speaking to her as a sports fan, but it's speaking to her as a person. And so really trying to think about like people versus sports stories. And I think those things have become intertwined in ways like they never have in, in the past. Yeah, that's interesting. My wife's similar. She actually doesn't share many of my, my geeky questions. Uh, <laughs> so the, uh, although I have got her along to, to enjoy Marvel and Star Wars. So that's, that's good. Keep it in the Disney family. I like that. <laughs> I, absolutely. We, we signed up for Disney Plus day one because of The Mandalorian. It wasn't there you from go. Florian, probably wouldn't have done it, but um, uh, <laughs> anyway, <Thank> you <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> keep giving no more She Hulk, and <laughs> not a fan of that. More Mandalorian, okay. All right, notation mate. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that. She Hulk was perfectly fine, except I, I didn't, <laughs> the CGI didn't look good to me, and that was distracting. So for anybody who's like, why didn't you like She-Hulk? Sorry, She-Hulk fan. <laughs> anyway, so that idea of storytelling, of engagement from a human standpoint, that is certainly one of the things that, that I enjoy is you know, achievement, drama, not drama of the game. There's some of that, but the drama of, of you know, individual achievement and performance of risk, you know, people overcoming challenges and knowing from, you know, when I was young and, and played a variety of sports, so it's a lot of a lot of hard work to do those things that I was not cut out for. So uh, <laughs> not, not in that way. So as you're in a competitive environment for attention, right? Taking this paradigm of sports and amplifying that for engaging storytelling, that's not something that has to do with the game itself. That has to do with the, how you, uh, I would guess so much has to do with how you craft the wraparound right? The, the commentary yeah. and, and we call that the game around the game, essentially the game around the game. Okay. So is that where a lot of your attention is spent from an insights production standpoint is to understand that game around the game component and have you leverage that effectively to draw people in as an entertainment mechanism versus just a sports thing? Yeah, it's, it's a really great question. I think it goes back to like, the, and, and I'll thank you again for joining the, the Disney Plus family, is how do we start to think about our content more broadly in ways that are going to bring in a, a bigger swath of fans and recognizing that those connection points can certainly be different for people. We talked about some of the social components. Um, you mentioned some of the things that people also get from sports in terms of competition and things like that. I think we've, we've expanded our palette of what we think of when we think about the word sports, right? Something that's competitive can be sports. I think one of the other things that we, we try to do is, is we recognize that, you know, there's, there's certainly a, a lane that ESPN plays in, but the agility that or the flexibility that fans give us to sort of expand that lane a little bit is something that we, I think we really noticed definitely in 2020. One of the, the interesting things when we did have no sports at all in the country is that, and as a researcher, it was almost, it was a nightmare and it was a blessing at the same time, right? It was a nightmare because we were scrambling, like there, our, our category 
doesn't exist right now, literally. But at the same time, it was the essence of a natural deprivation study. And, you know, we've done our own forced deprivations, but here we are in a country where sports are truly deprived. So for, for that time period, we, we really tried to take advantage of what does sports mean to you now that you no longer have it, right? And, you know, the, the saying like absence makes the heart grow fonder. I think it was helpful to have people think about that and it gave them a platform to articulate some of those things that maybe they don't always have the ability to articulate. So for us, that connection between what people were doing as just people during that time and as sports fans really was great fodder for thinking that still shapes, I think, how we approach research today. Now that brings up an interesting question too of this broadening definition of sports into virtual sports. You know, it never ceases to amaze me that my kids will sit and watch somebody play a video game, which I find to be the most boring damn thing in the world, right? Like, <laughs> why would you watch somebody play? Just pl you play the video game. Why watch somebody play a video game? But I understand that is a sport for many people. And it makes me think not. So there's this broadening definition of what sports are. But also, what does that look like in the future? If Meta ever ushers in full VR, you know, I've been waiting for that, you know, ready player one type of, of, of reality. We'll get there at some point. How does that change the game when it's not just the, the nature of the content is changing, the delivery mechanism of the content is changing, but that also creates opportunities for a whole different level of engagement for the audience that currently we're not quite there yet. Any thinking on that? What does that future look like from your perspective or, or ESPN's so one of the things that we've discovered, especially when you start thinking about younger generations, is they have this portfolio of passions, right, of which sports is just one of them. And I think these alternative options for how you connect are giving us ways to, to develop those sort of like new paths of fandom um, that I mentioned before. And I think gaming in particular, at the end of the day, and it's something that you know we've studied a lot, gaming is just a component of play, right? And we know that Kids who pick up a basketball or a baseball on the playground are much more likely to consume sports media as they grow up. That's, you know, that's just part of our facts, except I think there's some nuance to that fact a little bit. You know, at the same time, kids who pick up a game controller, we used to call them joysticks when I was growing up, are getting a similar yet virtual experience of sports. And we, we've actually analytically were able to showcase that playing, whether physical or virtual, still had the same impact in creating fandom later in life. Hmm. So for us, it certainly created a, a mindset shift in thinking about how do we engage people in ways that weren't necessarily available 20, 30 years ago. So, you know, from an insights perspective, it just reminds us that we have to be agile as a research team and not only study sort of the physical world, but also the virtual world. And I think the, the, the challenge or the, the, the problem or opportunity in front of us now is the interconnection of those things, right? Now that physical and, and virtual are starting to blend a little bit or when, you know, Meta does, you know, fully, you know, reach its prime, making sure that we're there ready to embrace that, that new way to serve sports fans anytime or anywhere. It's very cool. All right, so I wanna be conscious of your time and our audience this time, but we all have our favorite methodologies, our favorite tools, right? 
I understand when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but we don't just have hammers anymore, right? We have a full toolbox with lots of different things, but I still have my favorite wrench, my favorite screwdriver, <laughs> my favorite hammer. What are some of the things that you just love from a, a research toolkit standpoint? And you, don't, you don't, if you want to name names, that's fine. You can name names, but not necessarily. That's not what I'm asking. It's more of the, the techniques or the approaches that you think, man, this just delivers. This gives me what I need on a regular basis to answer the business question. Yeah. So, you know, when I think about like what's at our disposal, I generally think that there isn't one tool that is sort of like the be all end all. I think it really is the the collection of tools together that really help us triangulate on insight. So I think whenever we're approaching a research question, we start to think about what exactly are we trying to address and how do we think about the different techniques that are available to us that can help us paint a picture. Like for me, it's almost like you're building a puzzle, right? And so the different techniques allow us the opportunity to add more pieces to that puzzle so that the picture starts to become clearer. That said, you know, there's, there's things that offer us speed and, you know, social listening is certainly something that, that we can leverage really quickly when we're trying to just get reactions to yesterday's Monday night football game. Um, there's certainly, you know, traditional instruments like, you know, survey work that allows us to provide depth at a national level when we're trying to parse out, you know, maybe a specific connection to a sport or some nuance around some of our content. But I guess, you know, call me old school, but like there really is no substitute for kind of like what you and I are doing right now, right? Just the conversation. There's so much to be gained in what people tell you, but also how they tell you. You know, I'm just as focused on the mannerisms and, you know, the, the physical gestures of, of how people communicate what, what they're thinking and feeling. And I think that just adds a, a layer of context that is, is just irreplaceable. And I'll give you one quick example. I know we're against the clock here. You know, we were conducting research for Sports Center once and we we're comparing different editions. And one of the things that we did was we actually decided to play the video without any audio. And just to see how people were reacting to the body language of our anchors, were they making a connection in a way that was different from another edition? And again, it's, it's things like that, where you're like just reading people's faces that can be, it's almost like being an FBI agent. Like it just, it's the cherry on the top of the Sunday. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I'm actually doing this week. I've been doing a pro bono study for a nonprofit and yeah, you know, we'll just do a survey. Like, well, that's not going to tell us what we're trying to test an early stage ad concept. And I uh, said, so, look, we have some tools that are going to tell us a lot more. So let, let's do some some qual. And yes, I'll keep it cheap, right? <laughs> you know, I'm to work for a nonprofit. There you go. All us the favors, right? Because uh, so, there's there's power in understanding what people are are experiencing. That's what they're saying. And let's, you know, we'll, we'll do a survey, but let's put some some facial coding in there as well. Because that's going to be important for us to understand how people are reacting during this this early stage concept of the advertising. And even for me, and I, I love all that type of stuff. It reiterated again. This is yeah. I was before we started this. I was in that data, and <laughs> it's like, yeah, damn, this is powerful. Damn, it's so cool to be able to combine this battery of to have the tools to be able to combine attitudinal questions with non conscious measures and know that this is telling the, the full story and just, we couldn't have done those things. So in a scenario, same as talking in my mind, right? We're getting yeah, that 100%, 100%. And, and pulling that out. So right there with you. Okay. So one of the questions we usually ask is 
what content are you addicted to? I suspect that I know at least one of the answers to that. So outside of sports, what are you really paying attention to right now? Right. Well, I'll admit that I am a streamaholic. And like many Americans, I think I spent half my time just trying to remember what show was on what platform, right? <laughs> I have a lot of the streaming services for competitive intelligence, of course, right? Right, of course. Of At course. least that's how I justify the bill. My favorite thing is always telling my wife, like, I can't help you right now. I've got to watch this for work. And half the time it's true and half the time it's not. <laughs> but, but, but seriously speaking, I think if we go beyond sports, I guess, I guess my, my addiction right now, I, I, I like to... I like to watch content that's fully immersive. So right now, House of the Dragon on HBO is like something that like I watch without a phone in my hand because I have to be paying attention to the language, the, the, the body, you know, like everything, like how people move the characters. But when I need something that's a little bit less involved, let's say I might just like turn on Cobra Kai on, on Netflix. So I'm, I'm thinking about like what's literally on my, you know, my favorite list right now. So it's, I'm deviating between House of the Dragon and Cobra Kai. So those are my guilty pleasures at the moment. Our fandom is very similar. Although, because we just moved to Kentucky and all that, I have not had a chance to watch either of them, but I desperately want to. Like literally, you know, running a small farm and get all that and moving everything. By the time we get the kids in bed, I'm just, I'm asleep on the couch. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and I've learned that, so I won't turn something on that I want to watch because I know I'm just going to miss it. But right there with you, Cobra Kai is what, man, what a joy Cobra Kai is. What a, all of those seasons, who would have thought? Yeah, the fact that they can get so many of the characters from the original movie to be a part of the series is pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And not a, uh, so not, not Disney content, but in my opinion, Google really screwed up in letting that, uh, YouTube letting that go when they launched it. Man, they, I that when was, they had like the first two seasons, if they were like at least the first season, the first right? season, yeah, it's like you guys screwed up letting that go. It, it could have made that entire <laughs> platform, but anyway, that's not here. Hindsight, so all right, Edwin, anything else that you want to share with the audience before we wrap up? Uh, any pearls of wisdom, or as my friend Greg says, songs, poems, anecdotes, <laughs> uh, pearls of wisdom. I think the main thing as a researcher, just trying to think about how do we step outside of ourselves? I'm always, I, I also, you know, kind of end where I started, like I'm always trying to challenge, what do I think I know, right? And I think one of the things that's been really helpful for me is about two years ago, I was able to take part in something called the ICC, which stands for the Inclusive Content Committee at ESPN, where it allows us to get a diverse set of eyes in front of a lot of the content that's created at ESPN before it goes out. And it allows us to look at it for vocabulary, language, you know, storylines. But the idea of like diversity of content, and I pick up on things now that I've never picked up on before. So while it's something that I do outside of my research role, quote unquote, it has made me a profound researcher because now I, I'm seeing detail and nuance in terms of how we approach our work I never saw before. I feel like, you know, the fog is cleared. So I would just challenge everybody to think about how are we like embracing diversity of thought on our, on our collective teams? Cause it really does drive compelling research and then ultimately hopefully a compelling product for the companies that we work for. Yeah. I could not agree more. Even just the, the, this experience of now having this podcast, it has been amazing for me as an individual, as a human, and I think as a researcher to it was a good reminder of different perspectives are treasures. You know, I mean, I have to agree, but I definitely need to learn. 
So a hundred percent with you. Yeah, let's 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 definitely continue to to think about all the different angles that exist. Those camera angles, right? That's right. Um, to get that three sixty, yeah, so you can shift around. Camera angles are always helpful. What was that play? Did they really? Was that really a foul? Uh, <laughs> not really a fumble? I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Edwin, thank you so much. Where can people find you? I, I guess the the easiest place would be LinkedIn, of course, if you want to reach out, but. Feel free to shoot a note to Greenbook. I also am a member of the board for a number of years. So shout out to Lukash and the rest of the board. So you can find me in any of those two places. But but thank you, Lenny, so much for the opportunity to, to spend some time and, and just have some great conversation. Oh, thank you, Edwin. It was uh, long overdue and uh, we'll need to do it again. So I'm glad we had this chance to to chat as, as friends, but also to uh, you know, do a really great podcast episode. So thank you. Thank you. A couple more thanks. Our producer, Natalie. Our editor, James, our sponsor, Nailbiter. Of course, our listeners, without you, there's, well, Edwin and I would still find an excuse to chat, but it makes it all better when we actually have people that we know that may be interested in what we're talking about. So that's it for today for this episode. Tune in for uh, another one very, very soon. Everybody take care. Bye for now. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transforming insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.